This is Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute, where we help leaders be future ready. Helping us in this mission today is Dr. Cameron Stockdale, CEO of the Work Wellness Institute. And we'll be talking today about fostering healthy work environments. The Work Wellness Institute is a key sponsor of the International Leadership Association Conference in Vancouver in October of 2023. Cameron, thank you. We're delighted that you're joining us today. Well, I appreciate the invitation. It's exciting to be here. So work wellness is such an important topic right now. How do you prioritize health and well-being in your workplace, given the constraints of limited resources, predominantly time? The issue of workplace health and wellness has been a real significant topic coming out of COVID and through COVID. I think it really came to everybody's radar. I know that our organization, for example, we kept getting phone calls. I've got this staff. We don't really know what to do. They're they're stressed out. They're saying they're having a hard time working. They're burnt out. And so we have a lot of those phone calls. And there's a lot of things that we talk to organizations about. And we said, it's starting to prioritize your employees. Like your employees are the backbone of your organization. And as a leader, what you need to be doing is creating positive work environments. And that's certainly going to help. If you think about the amount of time that we spend in an occupational setting in our lifetime, the impact of a healthy workplace, both physically and sort of from a mental health perspective, it really makes a difference in people's lives. So physically, natural light in your offices, ergonomic workspaces, it's things like from a mental health perspective, it's recognizing employees from a motivation perspective. We really talked about flexibility in the workplace uh, with respect to, does the person really need to start at nine o'clock in the morning every day if they're not a morning person? Because as an employer, you're really interested in getting the work done. Now, are you really worried about the time when they get that work done? And the positive impact of those things on employees certainly makes, makes a difference. Because it was such a, a big topic coming out of the pandemic recently, a lot of organizations, you know, invested in health and wellness programs. And I think what we've seen actually is that it's becoming a bit of a fat that a lot of organizations have seen consultants come in and say, hey, listen, I'm going to develop a workplace wellness program for you and implement all of this. And it's really costly at the end of the day. The employers, they've tried, they've gone out and they've hired people and they've brought them But what the research is saying, and this is what we do in the organization as we research this, is that these programs, these wellness programs, are not actually having a huge outcome at the end of the day or a positive. So organizations, small to medium enterprises, are really interested in their employee health and well-being. They've gone out, they've spent money, but it's not doing anything. And so I think what really needs to happen is employers need to see themselves as leadership, painting a vision for the organization. And start by creating a culture that addresses health and wellness. It takes everybody in the organization, but just start with those simple, basic steps where you think about it from, you know, the work from an employee perspective. I think that's where you really need to start. I was speaking to a professor a few months ago and we were talking about creating those workplace environments. Employers are coming in and they're like putting foosball tables in and they're, they're putting a bowl of apples on the table, etc. That's not creating a culture. If those things are a result of the culture, then great. 
But I think it starts with that sort of, you know, understanding sort of change management approach, processes, understanding how to create healthy cultures and changing the cultural environment. And I think that evidence is saying that's where you really need to start to make an impact. As you're speaking, I was actually looking at our guiding principles to see if wellness showed up in our company guiding principles. And that word does not show up. Although the intent is there, we use things like holistic and sustainable. We're a company that wants our employees to be healthy and well and resilient and anti-fragile. But it's interesting that even given what we stand for, we haven't been as explicit as maybe we should have been. You said something there about sustainable, and I think that that's really important. Sustainability is not dumping a pile of money into these programs. Sustainable is giving your employees the tools, the professional development, where they can take a course, they can take a program, or they can learn some new skills. Those things, once you employ them, pay dividends for years to come. And so that word sustainability, I think, is a really important perspective for organizations to take. And the fact that you mention it means it's high on your priority list. And I think that that's really something that creates dividends for a, a long period of time. I appreciated that you talked about the fad nature of the foosball table. I'd say the open bar and the lunchroom, fancy coffees. Now, I do realize that open bar in the lunchroom does not mean people come in and do shots at breakfast, that there is an expectation of productivity. And if you're not productive and effective, your visits to the bar and to the company will be cut off pretty quickly. Yeah. So what we do here in this organization is we try to walk the talk. Like if we're doing research or we're creating content and programs from research on what is best practice, we try to implement that here. So our staff work a flexible work day. It doesn't matter to me whether or not you work in it. So you start at 7.30 in the morning or 9.30. You're accountable for your work. We implemented a four-day work week, which will I say is not easy to implement, to do it well. It's not just, hey, I'm going to take Monday or Friday off. There's a lot of steps that you need to take. But at the end of the day, an organization does not survive unless people perform these issues that we talk about, whether it be the four-day work week or whether it be a flexible workspace or giving them mental health days that they just, you know, you could take that day off, just let me know in advance. And those things are meant to create a workplace environment where people want to be and they're motivated to work and they're motivated to perform. It has to be a win-win situation. It can't just be everything for the employee and they don't perform because then the organization will not survive. So you have to look at it from that balanced perspective and ensure that at the end of the day, what you're really doing is you're motivating your staff. I appreciate the distinction that it's a both. The company has to thrive or we can't continue to pay people and people have to thrive or we can't continue to have an organization because I think people do tend to over-index on one side or the other to the detriment of finding an appropriate balance for your organization. Uh, I think that's very evident in the four-day workweek discussion. You know, when I go out and I speak about the four-day workweek and why people should potentially consider it in their organization, people are like, you are you kidding? We're never going to get anything done or and if you explain that the intent of a 40 work week is to deal with things like labor relations issues, 
on top of, you know, making it a, a healthier environment for your staff. Like I said, it's that win-win. And once you explain that to employers, their ears perk up a little bit. Well, maybe this is something we could implement in our organization. And then we talked through that. Basically, I, what I talked to them about is running some workshops in their organization and say to them, listen, these are the sort of the five workshops that you need to run with all of your staff, setting key performance indicators. Like what does success really look like? What does failure look like in that process? And really mapping that out before you ever get involved in implementing the 40. And if you don't do that, it's not going to work. We actually talked about it in our company and our team decided no. Oh. And here's the reason why. Because people have the freedom to work absolutely whenever they want. They don't have to work on Fridays, but the work has to get done. Nobody works early in the morning. Um, we all start at a reasonable yeah. morning time. I take off early evening to go do yoga and I pop back to work. Other people have theater performances and practices, and we've got someone who runs in the morning. So we're all aware of each other's schedules, and we work to ensure that everyone can do the things they care about according to their schedule. Now, of course, there are always things that come up, but rarely have I asked anyone to miss something that is important to their well-being. Four-day work week, for example, it asks you to fundamentally change the way that you work. So the same amount of work has to get done. The reports still need to happen by the end of the week. Your week ends on Thursday. So it, you know, it still needs to go into the budget your way. What it means is that you, every day, you change how you work. And you emphasize time management skills really are prioritized. We implemented something here, for example, which was you work for 52 minutes, you take a 17-minute break. I'm just sort of copying kind of what the research is out there. And we're asking people to try that. And what ended up happening was our staff all sort of synchronized their 52-17 time schedules. And for 17 minutes, our staff would get up and they would go out and everybody would go for a walk. Every hour. Every hour, you get like a 17-minute break and you know, you're kind of held to that. The really interesting thing was that that's the time when people started to be collaborative. That's when people started socializing. That's when people started talking about, hey, what are you doing on the weekend? Oh, I'm going hiking. Oh, I should go hiking too. Well, why don't you come along? And those kind of things started to happen in the organization. And they were walking, we were in Canada here, uh, they were walking kilometers and kilometers every week on these 17-minute walks. And so they were all getting exercise and people were commenting like, I'm feeling good these days. Like, hey, I've lost a little bit of weight <laughs> because every hour they're doing a 17-minute walk out the door. So as an employer, you talk about creating those healthy work environments and what can you do that doesn't cost a lot of money? There's a perfect example of it. Just ask people to schedule their time, 52, 17, and off you go. We put like yoga mats and all that kind of stuff in our office. People like going for the walk. They don't want to use the yoga mats. You know, They don't want to use that equipment. It's a social time when they go for those walks. Now, even in the winter. Yeah. How long have you been doing this? This is about eight or nine months. At this point, we've done the four-day work week. I live in Vancouver. You know, I went to school down in the States and you know, people would always ask, how do you live in Canada when it's so cold? And I kind of laugh and I say, like, I don't own a snow shovel here. Like, we don't get snow in Vancouver. 
we're very warm. We're like a two hour drive from Seattle. So whatever weather you kind of get in Seattle is very similar. It rains. So as long as you have an umbrella, they still go for a walk. I've done walking meetings with clients and now because we tend to work more remote, we all just put on our headsets and go for a walk during our meetings. There is the notebook that goes with you and you're stopping during your walk and taking notes and you know, clearly a recording like this, we can't be walking through the woods. But apart from something where I have to share screen, I'm walking and most of the team is walking. So to your point, I get 10 to 20,000 steps a day unless the weather's really unpleasant. Because staff only works in the office four days a week. We do say to them that we ask you to come into the office for two days. So 50% of the time they're at home. It's part of that flexibility and they certainly like that ability to work from home. But when we have large sort of staff meetings, et cetera, we ask everybody to come in. And that's when you really see that collaborative sort of environment where people the most 17 minutes, get up and off they go for a walk. A lot of work gets done on those those walks. Now, the intent is that it's a break, but people tend to solve problems when they're out there because now they're together and the headsets are off and the computer screen's not in front. So it's a different feeling. And we use different parts of our brain when we're walking than when we're sitting. So two days a week in the office, flexibility, how did you come to two days versus three days, two days versus one day? You know, my background, I, I came from healthcare, right? I worked 24, 25 years in emergency services. And I'm going to say I'm a little bit old school. And I think, you know, an office job is Monday to Friday, nine to five. That's my gut instinctual reaction. A lot of this is, is new to everybody, but this is a case of trial and error. This is a case of what works best for the organization and what has worked best for employees. I need them to come into the office to have that face-to-face because we know that those meetings that take two minutes face-to-face now take 15, 20, 30 minutes in an online setting. And if you're doing the four-day work week, for example, you can't continually have hour-long meetings when you only need five minutes because you have to maximize the time that you're working. So it was really a case of trial and error that, we saw if there was any less than two days a week that the collaborative work process started to fall apart. So we're right on that cusp. I think two days is some, some days you'll talk to me and I'll think, you know, we could really do three days a week. What I think you often see though, is that what I'm finding and what other employers are finding is it really puts pressure on your hiring practices. I think that a lot of the changes that are happening out there with remote work, hybrid work, it's really going to put pressure on your ability to hire the right people. You know, you can hire somebody uh, who's a fantastic employee in the office, but they can't manage that freedom uh, to work at home or work in those remote environments. And so I think it's going to change our HR practices and how we're hiring people. It has to. And when you think of things like AI moving into the workplace and how people are going to manage those kind of issues, I really think that there's going to be a significant change in what we look for hiring. Let's jump into AI because we are sending to the printer this week a book, Innovative Leadership and Followership in the Age of AI. 
I am always curious to see what thought leaders are seeing relating to AI in the various ways it will enable and put risk into our businesses. I think this is a massive topic we're all going to be grappling with for a while. We know that AI helps us do our job faster. I think the numbers are saying like it's 30% faster. And I've asked our staff to take AI and just play around with it at this point in the organization. Tell me how it applies. How can you use it? We all hear this threat. Hey, all the jobs are going to be taken over by AI and computers, and robotics, et cetera, soon. Now, I'm not really a, a massive believer that all jobs are going to disappear. I often use the analogy, you know, at one time people made buggy whips and, you know, when they came cars, those buggy whip makers had to do something else. So I, I you know, I don't necessarily believe that all jobs are going to disappear. Yes, we are going to see a change. Yes, we're going to see new new skills. Going back to that idea of you know the ability to problem solve and how important that is. Collaborative work, I think, is going to be prioritized. But I think leaders of an organization really need to start thinking now about preparing their employees for the future and start dabbling in and being aware of what AI actually means. And that means change. And change is a huge issue. We know that. Whatever study we read, you know, they say change management practices. You know, when you implement something, 70% of the time it fails. We know that it's not done well. I think for leaders, it, it really focuses on aligning your organization to when you're implementing. Like it has to match your values. It has to match kind of the resources that you have in the organization. So if you don't have the computer software or you don't have the hardware to run AI in your organization, you sort of have to look at upgrading the values of your organization. If you say, as you did, you know, you talk about wellness and and values of your organization, it has to match that or else change doesn't happen. And ultimately, I think it places a big emphasis on communication skills. We all know that change management communication is pushed We do have a tendency to use that magic silver bullet of communication, fire out an email, fire out a letter to staff, and we think that we've communicated. And people have questions. As soon as you put that letter out, they question the elements of it, no matter how well you think you've covered things. And if we don't provide enough information, our brain immediately goes to filling in the blanks with negative. And so that's why communication is important. And then with everybody having questions out there and not knowing how it's going to impact them, I'm glad you said what you said, because the first topic in our list of 10 things leaders need to get right is communication. And part of that is change management. The other thing I would add to that is the experimentation that I need my team to help me figure out where we put it in and where we don't. And when people own the decisions they're making and then the influence. And I would say the experiments because we don't know. And AI is changing and our work's changing all at the same time. So we're experimenting with all kinds of stuff. And the team is telling me more than I'm telling them. Like I said earlier, I've asked our staff to chat. GPT is the one that everybody knows. Like, Go and work with it. Mm -hmm. Go and see how well it works. Try and apply it to the, the work that you do. On the research side of things, one of the things that we're looking at is like, can we use it now to do scoping work? So we've done a research project recently now that, that says, let's compare uh, you know, a scoping review to one a human did versus an AI. And I'm going to use the word enhanced 
you know, we can't go in and just type in like do a scoping review and do it. It helps you put sort of the, the keywords in and gets better information out. And what we're finding is that the assistance that it provides will actually do, again, a better job than what we do sort of from a human perspective. And that's just a question of our staff going out there and experimenting and trying and then coming back to the, you know, the leadership team and saying, I really think this will work well in this area and this is where we can implement it. It will save me lots of time. We do lots of script writing for our videos in our organization and our courses. And that helps immensely with the script writing. So the education team, you know, they come back and they say that, you know, this is going to save me. You know, what took me 30 hours before, I can do it three. So for our organization, our staff are coming back to us and saying, this is where it works and this is where it doesn't. And that's very helpful for me as a leader of an organization to sit down at a table with our management team and say, this is a direction. What do we need now to make this happen? Including the change management practices, aligning values of the organization, the communication piece, the typical change management stuff that you hear all the time that is often overlooked. And this has to be done well because it is a game changer. And if you can drop the amount of time into a project by 90%. That's significant. It sounds like you're doing the thing that is so crucial, and that's ensuring the high quality of your work product. So yes, we use ChatGPT, and our experts then validate and augment the work, or it starts with us and ChatGPT adds to it. But either way, your expertise is still the core. Yeah, I think it has to be at this point, at, at the stage that AI is at, that we actually have access to. There might be something hidden behind the scenes that brilliant and, and we don't need that. But right now, it still needs that human touch. And how does our staff interact that we can't go out there and talk about don't follow this fad with work wellness without everything being evidence-based. I think what AI does for us at this point from a work perspective is it really starts the ball rolling. And when I say that, what I mean is you can sit there in front of a blank page and rewrite that first paragraph 10 times. What happens now is that, you know, our staff are able to say, can you write the first paragraph of a script for our course? And it does it and they can go in and change it and edit. But it really starts the ball rolling. And I think that's where it really saves a lot of time. Yeah, with our recent book, a lot of the same thing, first draft, we had ChatGPT go listen to podcasts, our podcasts, so not random stuff. So we control the quality and read all the blog posts. So it read probably thousands of pages of what we've created, came back with the first draft. And we probably modified it by 75 to 85%. But we had a thing to start with. I didn't have to go read a thousand pages again. And I don't remember every podcast I've recorded or, you know, every article I've read or written. So it was a really nice jump start. And so even though we only use 20% of the content, it may have saved us 30 to 40% of the time because starting from a blank sheet of paper, as you said, is just painful. Again, this really leads to this idea of hiring the right person. You can have staff who are opposed to AI, or you can bring people into your organization that are interested in 
utilizing AI, applying it to their work and learning. And that goes back, like I said, to hiring the right person. And I talk about hiring for characteristics in people now versus particular skills. We can teach somebody how to type. But I think that the characteristics of an individual are self-motivated, ethical. Those are the people we want in our organizations. And we haven't really hired for that in the past. We look at their, you know, their educational background. We look at their experience. Have you used Outlook before or Excel or whatever particular skill? And that's who we bring into the organization. That's not who I'm looking for. And I'm not saying that that's, they're bad, that I need a different type of individual coming into the organization that handles that four-day work week, that handles all the flexibility that we give them, but is still motivated to do the work that we need them to do and to really kind of advance the organization. And I think that that fundamentally defines the importance of leadership and leading a person like that. It's different. What do you think the leader needs to look like to lead in that era? Well, as I said, I I come from, I'm a little bit older. I come from that background of nine to five, Monday to Friday, do as I say, and hierarchy, right? Like if I used to wear my rank on my shoulder and do what I say, I don't think that that's it anymore. I think that leaders really need to understand motivation. And we know that it's not external motivation, it's internal. Like how I want people to motivate themselves, recognizing and talking to people and communication skills are massive. We always talk about it, but I still to this day think that we undersell it. I think that there's a level of flexibility. I also think there's a, from a leader perspective, you certainly can't think that you know it all. And you need to understand and learn from the collective wisdom around a table that you sit with. You can't know it all these days. I'm not an AI expert. My staff laughed at me. You know, I saw this technology having such an impact on our organizations. That I went back to school and I did a law degree in technology and innovation just because I needed to learn more. I mean, I don't suggest that you go back and do a law degree, but I think the continual learning process and understanding that you're never finished understanding people around you and the perspectives that they have. We made a real conscious effort in this organization to put different cultures, different people, different backgrounds and hire that perspective. And I'm really proud of the different uh, ethnicities that we have in this organization. It's really unique when you sit down and discuss a topic, the different perspectives that they bring to the table because of their experiences and backgrounds. And I think from a leadership perspective, you need to learn from that. Like you need to understand how vitally important that is. Every organization is an international organization now. We do work all around the world. And so if you think that your small little organization like ours is just focused on a very small geographic area, I think you're missing what organizations can be, what they're turning into, and a lot of the value that you can get from hiring the right people. I think it's a brilliant point. And the foundation of our work is that leaders need to innovate or update how they lead to keep pace with the world technology being a large driver of it. For those who want to set the pace for the changes, they doubly need to continue to stay ahead of what's happening so that they can actually lead, not follow. My master's degree and and doctorate are in leadership. And you sit there and, you, you know, you obviously you study all the various theories. And when you're writing papers, you apply them to the work environment that you're in. 
And I think that that's a foundational nature. That knowledge that you gain there provides the platform for you to sort of move forward and understand how to lead organizations, how to lead people. Because at the end of the day, it's all about the people that you surround yourself. But I think there's, a, there's an applied setting. And I think in, in many respects, there's a bit of trial and error there. You have to develop your own style to a certain degree. My failing is that my particular style is I like to develop one-on-one sort of relationships with staff, have face-to-face discussions, and really emphasize that communication piece. And I think that that's because of my background where, you know, as a paramedic, I would walk into individuals' homes and have very personal discussions about healthcare issues with them. And I think I've taken that practical application and put it into a place setting. Now, I'm not getting personal with people. It's all work-related and very professional. But it's the depth that I tried to have those relationships. And if you want to call it an open door policy where staff into the office and say, hey, like, let's just have a quick conversation. You know, that's a change for me in the leadership style that I had when I was, you know, management in an ambulance service. It started here with what we called Cake Fridays. So every Friday, I would bring a cake into the office and the staff would sit around, close their laptops, have a coffee and chat about the week. And we developed those relationships. So I think I've grown and I've understood how to apply that theoretical leadership that we've talked about in books. And I've learned and I've understood, hey, some of that doesn't work. You know, you can tell me transformational leadership. I can't always necessarily apply what the textbook says, but I've developed my own sort of hybrid style. And I think that maybe that's a bit of growth that you do over time. So you take a little bit from here, you take a little bit from here and create your own leadership pie. Which makes perfect sense to me because in different contexts, different things work. And so if you are hierarchical, as you said, or were, in some settings, that's still the expectation for leadership. In other settings, very collaborative And then I'm sure some in the middle. And so how you lead has to be a function of both who you are, what's authentic to you, and what's required within your organization. Yeah. And hockey is a big thing in Canada. And uh, our local hockey team made it to (laughs) the Stanley Cup. And my role, because there were just massive crowds downtown, and I was leading the teams, uh, the medical response teams in the area. And so this is 2011 and the big Stanley Cup riots and and I'm given orders, you know, so it's a, it's a hierarchy. I've got a couple of people that I bounce ideas off of because I don't want to make a mistake in this environment. But when I bark out that sort of order, that very authoritarian, you're going to jump in your car, you're going to respond to this location, and then you're going to turn around and come right back. Those orders have to be followed. Now, if I took that leadership, put it in the office here, I would have people walking. So yeah, you know, there's there's this idea of it has to fit the context of the situation. And I know that there's all kinds of leadership theories about that. But yes, you know, at the end of the day, leaders have to continue learning. And that's a new style for me working in an office environment, to be honest with you. I really struggled with the idea when I was leaving the ambulance service. Was I actually going to be able to work in an office setting? But I think the, the background that I have, the belief that I, I have in people are the backbone of your organization. You don't have an organization without people and how to treat them well, how to create a workplace environment where they're healthy, 
they wake up in the morning and they want to come to work and the ability to create that culture, those beliefs and my ability to sort of change my style has certainly, I think, made the job much more enjoyable. Cam, what was the biggest change you made and how did you navigate the struggle of making that? Because clearly you have jumped from one organization to another, very different context, different leadership style. What's required of you as a leader is different. And it sounds like you've done it successfully and you're proud of the changes you've made. I think the biggest leap is actually making the initial decision to make a change and understanding that with that decision is a series of elements that you have to educate yourself around. So I was getting promoted in the ambulance service and I decided like, hey, you know, I, I should probably go back to school, did a master's degree. And I think that that really opened up my eyes to a lot of that kind of leadership theory and context. And I really got involved in change management. And I, in my own research, I really looked at in the context of healthcare. And it was all in a sort of an applied setting because I was really frustrated with what was going on. Why couldn't people see what I thought was pretty obvious on how to move forward, how to do change properly, and what was important? So I think that the initial decision to really leave the organization, and then because I was worried about working in an office setting as compared to running around with lights and sirens, understanding that that was not going to fly in an office setting. And so I needed to be a different kind of leader. And I'm not saying that you always bark orders in an ambulance service. There are certainly times and opportunities when the importance of communication, as I keep harping on that and, and looking after your staff. My job in this organization is to take the speed bumps out of the way of people. And I think that that has put me in sort of good stead in how to deal with people effectively in this organization. How did you go through that process? Because some of these are complete changes in our meaning-making algorithm, I would say. Like good looks like this and now good looks like something else. How do you get there? That's a really good question. Maybe I'll give you a little story to uh, serve a bit of an analogy. In an ambulance service, you develop your personality and your the social structure in which you work very different than an office set. So at the hospital with the ambulances all parked, you know, you sit at the back of the ambulances with the other crew and you're all telling stories. And the person at the center of that you know, has this larger than life personality. It actually often doesn't reflect who they truly are. But, you know, thick skin, boisterous, loud, you know, that person that demands all the attention. That's the person that sort of gets promoted and gets the sort of the plum assignments. That's the person that when you make a mistake, you don't get criticized. It's hard to go from that person into an office work environment where a loud, boisterous individual like that isn't the person that you want to be working. Like that, that's the person that you want to exit out. So that change from I'm like understanding that a successful person in the next environment but changing the, your gut reaction to events, changing when somebody makes a mistake that you're now, this is a learning opportunity versus an opportunity to criticize or to make yourself more the center of attention. It's difficult to explain. But these days, I think my leadership style is you can make a mistake. Whereas I came from an environment of like, don't make a mistake. And as an ambulance paramedic, here, I think, yes, at the end of the day, you might have consequences for the organization. Frankly, nobody's going to die. 
I don't know if that answers your question, but gives you a bit of an insight into the world I came from. Thank you for sharing that. And the idea that context really does matter because in an emergency medical setting, death happens when it's not done well. And that does seem like a point where you don't huddle and figure it out. You have to go by really strong training and someone who is at points telling people what to do. I agree with you for the most part, but the healthcare system in some of those environments would probably really benefit from more collaborative work. And that you're so much better off in all contexts in turning to the person who's sitting beside you and creating the environment where they're okay to tell you what you think. That idea of psychological safety in the workplace it's not just a case in an ambulance service or an emergency room. I remember going back to being a paramedic and walking into an emergency department and watching an eMERGE physician do CPR wrong. The fact that they were doing CPR to begin with instead of somebody else was kind of a different story, but they were doing it wrong. But nobody had the gumption to stand up to this person and say, you're doing it wrong. And I think as leaders, the ability to create a psychologically safe environment where anybody can say to you, I've got a better idea. And if we go back to this idea of AI and the changes that are happening in the workplace, like, wow, what kind of organization can you create if everybody is feeling empowered to put their hand up and say, I have an idea? That's interestingly, the integration of followership and that we need to create environments where followers, one, can do exactly what you've said, is contribute the thing they're there to contribute, feel safe to do it, and that leaders need to also know when they're a leader and when they're a follower. In my company, there are times I follow. There are times I should not be leading because other people just know more than I do. It's not that I abdicate. It's that I know where to set direction and where to trust others to then carry it out because they're better than me at those things. We have a, a technical person, an IT person in our organization. They know IT stuff way better than I do. I take a back seat when they're speaking. When they're leading a project, I sit at the table and I listen. I ask questions so that I can understand it and I keep putting into the context of that discussion around the project, what's the vision of the organization? What is it that we're trying to accomplish? And make sure that we're all on the same page. But they're the leader. And I think sometimes for leaders of organizations, that can be hard, that you're not the recognized leader in this role. And so people struggle with that at times. But I think we'd be much better off if we all took that moment and that ability to sit at the table and listen and learn. Absolutely agreed that knowing when I need to follow takes us back again to what we talked about earlier, just more productive. Because I have seen where I jump in and I just confuse the process. It's not helpful. So let's now go back to workplace wellness and the idea of mental health. Such a crucial point right now, and I don't know if the stats are the same in Canada, but I think in the U.S., and I'm not citing a specific study, but the general level of anxiety and depression, I think, is right around 40% people reporting that they're dealing with anxiety and depression. How, from your research, are you recommending 
organizations help the backbone of their business function effectively in an environment where, quote, post-COVID, but people are still dealing with the fallout of what do I do with kids' education and the changes in schooling with aging parents, all those things that's now creating more stress than it did. And frankly, some of the flexibility probably creates an additional set of stress and solves other stress. You know, the research, I would say, is all over the map. Uh, I think as a as a leader, what I would suggest to organizations right now is just start with this idea of destigmatizing the discussion on mental health. For years and years, mental health has been you know, everybody whispers about it in the background. Oh, you know, that, that person is off on stress. You don't know how to speak to somebody. You don't know how to have those conversations. I think if we were much more open about it and we understood that mental health is synonymous with physical health. And what I mean by that is, you know, nobody whispers if you break your leg. You know, you come back with a cast on your leg and crutches and you might talk about it and you're like, how did you break your leg? Oh, I was in a skiing accident. And you have those, those discussions and we don't do that. We don't create that environment in an organization. What that does when you create that stigma is that you make it difficult for people to come back to work. So we know that when people are off for an extended period of time, the chances of them actually coming back to work successfully diminish. So let's make it an environment where we can talk about it and that people equate a broken leg to mental health. I think that that's where leadership needs to start. If somebody has trauma in their lives that has caused some of these issues, we've all heard it before. And so if we can be employers that are flexible enough and can provide support for our staff and our employees, I think that that's really the place where we start to deal with some of these issues. So if your employee doesn't need to struggle to get a day off to go deal with their elderly parents, if they have the relationship with the employer that says, you know, I need a Thursday afternoon off because I have to take my mother to a doctor's appointment and there's not a battle with it, the fact that you're not layering on problems, I think that that really helps that idea of creating a supportive workplace. So this is back to where we started, where you talked about the flexibility, that I don't care when people work. I don't care that they go to doctor's appointments or yoga classes or go for walks or meditate in the middle of the afternoon as long as they get their work done and don't hamper their colleagues. You can't work from midnight till six in the morning if you're collaborating with someone who doesn't work those hours. It's hard to work with somebody when they like working at three o'clock in the morning and they're a night out. That's not business <laughs> hours. We have enough trouble that we don't work on the front. That's, that's the day that we shut here. The rest of the world was still working Friday. And, and so it really pushes this idea that you are still part of a business. Like the work still has to get done. You still have to generate money, but there's a human way. There's consideration of people. So. I would suggest at the end of the day, if you put people first in your organization, you do have the flexible workplace that you support your staff and your employees. You create a work environment that becomes high performing. It takes effort and it takes work, but you can do it. And, and we've seen it here. Over COVID, we grew 1800%. Like those are massive numbers. 
And like, I used to have hair before all that. I mean, we got so busy. Part of that is because of the type of work that we do in addressing workplace, you know, related issues around stress, and mental health issues. And, but the other fact of it is that, you know, our staff were working for producing quality, relevant material and they were motivated to do so. We don't have a lot of voluntary turnover because it's a good place to work. So we keep those, we keep staff here in the organization. We keep their knowledge, we keep their experience and the quality of what they do. And yet we're working a four-day work week. Now, again, a four-day work week isn't necessarily going to work for all employers. A manufacturer may find it difficult because it's time on machine that actually makes them. So I'm not advocating that you roll out a four-day work week everywhere. But what we did is we implemented 80% of the time for 100% of the pay. It's resulted in a good experience for employees. It has certainly been a win. So people aren't doing a 10-hour day four days a week. You're actually cutting their hours. Cutting their hours by one day. That's a lot. It's 80% of the time, 100% of the pay. But that goes back to this idea of who are you hiring? If somebody's not motivated to change the fundamental way that they work, then it's not going to work. We know from research that in an eight-hour day, staff really only work three hours. You need to maximize that time. It's no longer your two hours and 59 minutes. I need you to work for six hours. And AI will help with that. You know, we'll be more productive in those four days by implementing technology. So looking forward on the note of wholesale change five years from now, what do you hope to see, expect to see in the areas of well-being in the workforce? And let's say in North America, Canada, and beyond, I realize that some of this is also contextually different in different countries. I think first and foremost, we need to base our wellness programs on evidence-based content. We can't continue forward asking organizations to pay money to implement wellness, health and wellness programs that at the end of the day, don't have any value for anyone. So let's get away from those fads. Let's get away from this idea that everybody and their dog can create a wellness program, you know, slap a label on it and call themselves like a wellness consultant. Because I think it's such an important area. I mean, at the beginning of our discussion, I, I mentioned we spend so much of our time in our lives in the workplace. And the impact of an appropriate workplace or a healthy workplace on our overall well-being, I don't think can be underestimated. So this idea that right now that everybody can come along and create a program and a fad and implement it and charge money for it, despite the best intentions of employers, I think that that really has to change. So what I would love to see five years down the road is that there's a lot of good research, the content. I don't know why we're all trying to make money at that at the end of the day. It's people's health. And so that's what I would love to see. You know, there are different areas that work in the space. Therapists, vocational rehab, disability case managers. There's lots of organizations and careers in this space. And I think people need to see it not as a sort of a second option, maybe sometimes that they fall into it. There probably needs to be an understanding that these careers are very valuable. So that's maybe the next step. Create the evidence, create the programs, get people to look at it as a career to move into. Well-trained, evidence-based programs. I love that. Evidence-based programs that make an impact. On that, 
Cameron, where do people learn more about you and the organization? We're always happy to uh, go to my LinkedIn page. Or I'm always willing to connect and answer messages there. And our website, uh, the Work Wellness Institute, uh, we're blasted all over the internet. And uh, you mentioned the ILA, we're a sponsor of that conference. We'll be at that conference and our staff will be there. We have a booth on the side where you can come and chat with us if you're in Vancouver for, for that event. But you're always willing to email us or, or phone call us. Thank you, Dr. Cameron Stockdale, for sharing your wisdom with us today. And thank you to our listeners. We hope that Cameron's wisdom and experience have helped you become a more future-ready leader. We encourage you to reach out and learn more about the evidence-based approaches of the Work Wellness Institute. Please like us and share us, and most importantly, join us again. This episode is made possible in part by the International Leadership Association's 25th Global Conference. It's taking place online October 3rd through 4th, 2023, and on-site in Vancouver, Canada, October 12th through 15th. There's still time to register and make career-advancing professional connections as you discover the latest leadership research, best practices, tools, and tips. And if your focus is leadership in the healthcare sector, be sure to attend ILA's Healthcare Leadership Conference, a special one-day pre-conference event taking place October 12th. The Innovating Leadership Co-Creating Our Future podcast will be at the Global Conference. Will you? Learn more about both events at ilaglobalconference.org.